Morning. How we doing? Good. Glad you all made it. I know there's a lot of things you can do on a Sunday, so the fact that you came to spend your time with us is not something that we take lightly. If you're a guest with us, what we like to do at New Anthem is take a book of the Bible or a topic that seems relevant, and then we're going to spend a few weeks exploring what the Bible has to say about those things. And you picked a good Sunday to be here. We call those sermon series, and we're starting a brand new series today in the book of James. So if you brought a Bible, you can go ahead and grab it. James is kind of an obscure book, but if you look at the front of your Bible, there should be a table of contents there. It will tell you exactly what page James is on. I would encourage you each to bring your Bible uh, as we go through all of our sermon series, really, but specifically this one. We're going to go line by line through the text in James. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We'll put the passage here on screen, or you should have received some sermon notes on your way in in the welcome guide. You can follow along in there as well, but you need to see I'm not making any of this stuff up. Uh, James on page 1011 in my Bible, if that helps you. I don't know why it would, but maybe we got the same Bible. Anybody on page 1011, just out of curiosity? No. Okay. That's all right. Hey, James 1.1 is where we're going to start right in the beginning. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. It's clearly a letter saying, uh, writing it to a specific group of people. Who's writing this letter just out of curiosity? James. Yeah, right? Not a trick question. It is James. He's the half-brother of Jesus, by the way. Same mom, different dad. And all the evidence that we have while Jesus was on earth doing his three years of ministry is that James did not believe Jesus was the Son of God, who Jesus claimed to be. Because that's what happens when you have a brother, Yes, you don't think that they are deity. Not only that, but we have an instance in the Gospels where the Bible records for us that the brothers and sisters of Jesus went to where Jesus was preaching in order to seize him. Because again, that's what you do when you have a brother claiming to be the Son of God. You have him institutionalized, right? I mean, you straight jacket, heavily medicated, all of that. Yet, Shortly after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, which takes place in 33 AD, and this was written in 40 AD, so shortly after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, James takes it all back, he pushes his chips in, he says, I'm, I'm in. He is who he said he is, he did what he said he would do, he is God. So what happened? What card did Jesus play in order to convince his brother that he was the Son of God? You ready? What card he played? Resurrection from the dead, right? Canasta that, suckers, huh? Blackjack, resurrection from the dead. So just in case anyone here this morning is interested in convincing their family that they are God, because that would be pretty legit, right? I mean, I'm God, do what I say, or I mean it because I'm God. But in case you want to do that, just two simple steps. Here we go. Step one, die brutally and publicly. You'll need to be slaughtered in a public venue in front of hundreds, if not thousands of people to see. Nail that one first, okay? No pun intended. 
Then what you're going to need to do is three days later, come back to life and take your family out for like a fish sandwich. That's what you see Jesus doing in Scripture. So if you can do those two things, you can make all the claims of deity that you want. Now, I'm not talking about like some of the news stories we read where you're like out for 20 minutes. They bring out the paddles, ba-bow, right? You're back to life. Somehow you sit up, whatever. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying you are executed, brutally body ripped to shreds. Professional executioner says, yes, this man is dead. You're in the grave underground for three days. You somehow manage to crawl your way out of the dirt and visit your family. Hey, I'm back to life, guys. Y'all want to head down to like the, the Wichita Fish Company and get some sandwiches. Like that's what you would have to do in order for them to believe that you are God. And it's what Jesus did. That's why I bring it up. Because James is the single best apologetic defense we have for the resurrection of Christ. He didn't believe. Then something happened. And then he says, I'm all in. He takes, look at how he talks about uh, Christ in the text. He says, I am the servant of God and a servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ. See what he's doing there? He's saying Jesus is God, which is exactly what Jesus said he was. In fact, James is so committed to this idea that Jesus is the Lord, that he becomes a priest in Jerusalem, Not long after he writes this letter, the other priests take him up to a high hill where the temple was. It was called the Temple Mount. They literally throw him off the Temple Mount because he wouldn't say anything but Jesus is God. He breaks both of his legs. They scurry down the hill and say, now will you recant your faith? And he says, by no means. Church tradition tells us they picked up a club and bashed his skull in until he died. This is the man that once didn't believe, and yet he'll go and die a brutal death because he knows his brother is the Son of God. That's commitment. So who's James writing this letter to? It says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. The language 12 tribes here is kind of like slang for people of God or Israel, people who believe in Jesus. Oftentimes throughout Scripture, you'll read about the 12 tribes of Israel, and that in modern language simply means those who have become or those who have come to know Jesus as Lord. Paul, who wrote over 60% of your New Testament, uh, says it this way whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, Greek or Scythian, anyone who confesses Jesus as Lord. That's the 12 tribes whose James is writing to. The dispersion. Just referencing the moment in history where Christians were being tortured and killed in Jerusalem. So they left. They didn't like that. They scattered. They were dispersed across the world. And during this dispersion, they took the message of Christ to increasingly hostile environments. James knows this from his uh, spot there in Jerusalem. And so he writes this letter to encourage Christians to live a life dependent upon God and not to give themselves over to the presumed comforts of the world. And what's 
That's what this letter is really all about. It's very interesting because here, 2,000 years later, we find ourselves living in a very increasingly hostile to Christian world. And these truths are very applicable still for us today. So let's keep going. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Circle, star, underline, highlight, whatever you do, when. It's not if. It's when you meet trials of various kinds. If you're like me and thinking, what does he mean by trials? I've never been to court. Pastor, what is he talking about? And that's good, right? You're lucky if you've not been to, there's not people in here who have been quite so lucky, okay? We have some known felons in here, and that's good. I'm glad you're here. I'm just saying, just watch your wallet is all I'm saying uh, in, in what you're saying. I'm totally kidding. That's not true. That's, that's partially true. But, so, what does he mean by trials? It's the, I apologize. I shouldn't have said any of that. I just did. But, trials. It's the Greek word parosmos, okay? It can mean test, trial, disaster, plague, or experience. It's a very all-encompassing word. I love that he uses an all-encompassing word followed by some even more encompassing words where he says of various kinds. Because as American culture, what we like to do is label things. We need to know exactly what trials means. Is he talking about difficult marriages? That could be a a trial, okay? Is he talking about being sick? That would fit in the category of variety. I have a kid, right? He's acting a fool. He's starting to wild out. I mean, he's getting to that age. I mean, would that be included in trials of various kinds? Absolutely. It's various, right? Yeah. There's no wiggle room here in this text. You will have trials of various kinds. Now, it's important to realize that trials are different than temptations. We're going to break that down because James does, but we're focusing right now on trials. God uses trials, not temptations. Temptations and trials are very different because trials have the potential to teach us something. Okay, let's look at verse 3. So let's start back in 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So you see what trials produce in you. It says perfection. The Bible says it will produce in you perfection. Now this is not talking about sinlessness doesn't say you'll become sinless. On this side of heaven, you will never be that way. A kind of better way to think about perfect and complete is mature. Steadfastness produces in you spiritual maturity. If you're a parent, this is the same thing you're after in how you parent your kids. You're after their maturity. Try and wake them up for school. They say, oh, I can't go, right? I'm sick. You're like, you feel them for a fever. Boy, you're not sick. Get out of bed. Get dressed for school. They would call that a trial. As a parent, you just call that getting them mature. You're after their maturity. You want them to get good grades so they can get a good job and get out of your house so you can stop paying all their bills. Okay? That's producing maturity. Teachers do this as well. 
They give you tests to reveal if you need to redo any material or you get to go on to the next grade. It's about maturing. God's after the same thing. He wants your spiritual maturity. So in a very real way, James is telling us that our trials are necessary to produce in us this maturity that God is after. The things that we're going through are our education. And instead of running from the greatest school that God has ever made, instead we need to embrace it and learn from it. Not only are we to learn from it, we're also supposed to count it as joy. Count trials as joy. Like now who's insane? James, right? You have no idea what I'm going through. How am I supposed to count this as joy? Listen, look right at me. Because your joy is not dependent upon your circumstances. Your joy is not dependent on your circumstances. These do not dictate how you feel. It's where you place your hope. It's who you place your hope in. That's where joy comes from. Well, it's all well and good, Pastor, Begin. you have no idea what I'm going through. How is a bad marriage joyful? How is cancer joyful? How is addiction joyful? I'm glad you asked it because that's my next point right here in my notes. It's a very good question. Jot this down. In order to find a joy in trials, the first thing you have to do is recognize what's really going on. Recognize what's really going on. We don't embrace trials for what they are. They often are painful, hurtful, struggling experiences. Rather, we embrace trials for what God can accomplish through them. In a very real way, in every single trial, we should see a preparation for greater things that God wants to do in our lives, for things that God has planned for our lives. I'll give you an example of this. When I was in grade school and junior high, what was really popular were these hook and loop rugs. You guys know what I'm talking about? They were like these canvas things, and, and it had like a painting on it. And as you looked at it, you had to match the color of yarn to kind of the way the canvas was painted. And so if you looked at the rug from the bottom, it looked very absurd. It looked nothing like anything that you would want in your life. But then if you looked at it from the front, it was kind of a cool rug. And they do a variety of things. I remember like Mickey Mouse being one. Uh, any number of animal characters because they were uh, for kids specifically. But here's my point. You can't judge the work or the worker by looking at the wrong side of the rug because, of course, it looks horrible. You have to get the whole picture of the rug. In the same way, you're down here looking up at a trial. God stands outside of time looking at the trial from every possible angle and he's saying, no, this is going to work for your good. Don't get caught looking at your trials from the wrong side of life. You've got to look at it from God's perspective. You've got to recognize what's really going on. Your trials could end in something beautiful if you allow them to. So recognize what's really going on. What's really going on is God's trying to help you mature and help you rely on him. It's what faith is all about. It brings me to point two. Cooperate with God's growth process. You've got to cooperate with God's growth process because it is a process. Again, that's verse four. 
let steadfastness have its full effect. Apparently, there are layers to your Christian walk because you have to get to a full effect. Too often, we think the moment we get saved, everything's just going to be hunky-dory, rainbows, bunnies, dancing, eating chocolate, right? I mean, that's where we think we've now believed in God. Everything should be totally okay, but it's not true. It's a process. It's a very long, arduous process, and it goes up and down, up and down, up and down. We want to look at our trajectory. Hopefully, it's going up and to the right. So, I once heard a story, hopefully this will help, about a young entrepreneur interviews a very wealthy businessman and says, how did you become so successful? Businessman says, good decisions. Young man says, okay, well, how do you make good decisions? He said, experience. Entrepreneur says, okay, I'll bite. How do you get experience? And the businessman says, bad decisions. So true. So true. You learn through your mistakes. You learn through your failures. You learn through experience. You have to keep in mind that before God can work through us, he must develop character in us. And oftentimes those come through bad decisions that you have made. And if, our, if we value our comfort or our convenience more than we value our character, then we're always going to be upset by trials because we can't see that God's trying to accomplish something through them. We think our life should be easy. We value our comfort and our convenience. And instead, God's saying, no, you need to value your character. You need to cooperate with my growth process. God's goal for your life is not convenience. Spiritual maturity. God wants you to be mature. And that doesn't come overnight. So you've got to start cooperating with God's growth process. It involves trials. Here's number three. You need to ask for God's help. Ask for God's help. Pray. Verse 5, James 1, 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now you see, when you put this verse into context, James is not saying, ask for wisdom if you're dumb and you will stop being dumb. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, if you're in the midst of a trial, ask for wisdom and God will give it to you and he'll help you understand why you're going through what you're going through. In other words, your trial could be shortened. You have the potential to shorten your trial based on how quickly you come to this step, asking God for wisdom. Too often we try to do everything but pray, or we pray for things like strength or deliverance or grace or endurance, but what's God tell us to pray for? Wisdom. Pray for wisdom. Ask God for wisdom not to waste this opportunity that he's giving you. Ask to help him lead you to understand. Let me ask you this. How often are you listening during your prayer time? God might be trying to speak to you, and you're too busy chipping your teeth, as it were. God says, no, you need to listen. Ask for wisdom and listen I will give it to you. That's what the Bible just said. Trying to help you through your trials. Here's number four. Keep a good attitude. Keep a good attitude. Here's how I wrote it down in my notes. Your attitude determines your action. Your attitude will determine 
your action. Watch this, James 1.6. But let him ask in faith. When you ask for wisdom, ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. You can see a lot of people like to take that verse out of context and say, just ask for anything. As long as you ask for faith, you'll get it. Name it, claim it. It's not what James is talking about. Ask for wisdom with faith. Verse 7, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. God says, pray for faith. Ask for it. I will give it to you. If you've ever wondered how to kind of describe faith, a very similar word is attitude. How you view your life, how you choose things. I, faith and attitude are almost the same word. I'm choosing to trust God. I'm choosing to be positive. I'm choosing to acknowledge this trial, but I'm going to learn from it. What is all that choosing? Your attitude, how you view your life. What can you learn from things? Watch what happens when you have a good attitude. It's verse 12. Blessed or happy is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Here's what I know. Patience can only be brought about through experience. You can't read about it. You can't just get it through osmosis. You have to learn. You have to go through something difficult in order to learn from it. And if we are only living for the present, then our trials are absolutely going to upset us every single time because you have no hope for your future. You need to learn from your trials. Ask God to help you embrace those things. Recognize what really is going on, and keep a good attitude no matter what. People outside the faith are looking to you and how you're, underst- how you're interacting with your trial, and they want to see something different about how you respond compared to how the world responds, because when you look at the world, you see it's not really working. They want to know how they can get through the same trials in their lives. In the same way attitude determines action, your outlook determines your outcome. Your outlook will determine your outcome. How you view trials will determine how successfully you can navigate them. Look at how James started. When you meet trials, count them as joy. So if you want to end with joy, which is what happened in verse 12, then you have to start with joy, which is what happened in verse 2. Count it as joy. Go through the trial. Ask God to help. What happens on the other side, you'll find joy. Blessed, happy you'll be. Got to realize that when you're going through a trial, it's not meant to work against you. It's meant to work for you. This is very different than a temptation because watch what happens. James is going to say, not only do you go through these trials that are going to work for you, you're also going to have to go through these temptations that are going to try and work against you. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when, there's our word again, when he is tempted. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The word for temptation there is it's called parazo. It's very similar, but it's different. It means try to trap. So trials were meant to bring about some good, to help you mature, to bring you closer to God. Temptation, all temptation, is meant to drive you away from God, to separate you from God. You got the difference? Trials closer to God, temptations further away. So we've got to talk about how we navigate some temptation. First of all, you've got to recognize the sources, plural, of temptation. Look at verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desire. His own desire. See, everybody wants to say, well, the devil made me do it. Well, that's only partially true because we see here that the devil can't create something out of nothing. He's not that good. He can't conjure up sin out of the midst of nowhere. He operates on what you think you want. Sin is lingering with inside of you. You are both responsible for sin. You and the devil are the sources of your temptation. Don't get me wrong, there's something very wicked and evil in this world. But it can't operate on its own. It has to uh, be partnered up with you. The language James uses in here is all fishing terms. Okay, He describes how you'll be going along in life, but in will come this lure, and you're going to be distracted, and you're going to think that that looks really good, but you don't realize it leads to your death, that beautiful worm is hiding a hook, and that's what the devil needs to grab you and hook you and reel you in. I might be the only pastor who will ever tell you this, but of course sin looks attractive. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a temptation. Of course it looks good. Of course you want to follow after it. What you're not understanding is it leads to your death. It leads to your enslavement. All sin separates you from God. The wages of sin is death. That's why you have to understand, number two, the process of temptation. Understand the process of temptation. Just like spiritual maturity had a process, spiritual immaturity has a process. James outlines it for us. Here it is. First, he says there's a desire. Whatever you're looking at, Whatever you're thinking about, there's a desire in you. There's a faulty lie you're believing that God is trying to keep something from you. All sin is born out of this idea that you know better for you than God knows for you. And there's a desire within you. I want what I want when I want it. So your desire leads to a deception Part two, a deception. My life would be better if I drank this, smoked that, slept with them, bought this, swallowed that, whatever it is. You convince yourself, language in the Bible, you deceive yourself that whatever you desire is better than what God has commanded. So you follow through that lure in the water that the devil cast out there. 
And you go through with it and it's deception. It deceives you into biting onto it. Here's what happens when you bite that hook. Disobedience. God's commanded you not to bite the hook and it's disobedience. The word the Bible uses is sin. Sin. All sin is being disobedient to God. You let desire overtake you. You get deceived and then you involve yourself in sin. That's called disobedience. Too much disobedience, too much sin, it leads to death. Relational death, emotional death, spiritual death, physical death, financial death. That's where sin will lead you. You have to realize that your sin never affects just you. Just like physical death never affects just you. If you've ever lost a loved one, you know that's true. There's a hurt that comes along with that. In the same way, your sin never affects just you. The scariest part of all this is Proverbs fourteen twelve says, there's a way that seems right to man and in the end it leads to death. In other words, the saying, trust in your heart, just believe in yourself. That's the worst possible advice you can give to anybody. You're the problem. Wherever you will go, there you are, there lies the problem. You need something outside of yourself to direct and navigate your life. That's why making yourself the ultimate authority is the biggest disaster you could ever enter into. That's why you have to have the truth, capital T, in your life. That's why you have to have God's holy word being poured in to you. So what do we do? If we're the problem, how do we do this? Number three, learn how to overcome temptation. James 1.16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now that sounds like a completely different topic, but it's not. James has been talking about temptation this whole time, and then he says, uh, do not be deceived, every good and perfect gift comes from above, meaning there's a good gift that God wants to give you to get you out of temptation. 1 Corinthians uh, says it like this, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful because he will always provide a way for you to escape it. Hebrews 4 talks about Jesus being our high priest who can sympathize with us because he has been tempted in every way that you have, yet without sin. God knows what you're going through. Jesus looks down from heaven and says, no, Father, I know what that one was like. That one's really tough. You're going to have to send them a good and perfect gift down to help them escape that one because they're not perfect. That's the Jesus we serve. Yes. Tools are all there through the power and help of Jesus. But, I thought it would be helpful for us to all realize a couple things. I did not put any of these in your notes because it's going to be different for every single person. But let me give you some suggestions 
about overcoming temptation. Maybe some of these can be your good and perfect gift out of God through me, okay? Avoid harmful influences to begin with. Stop putting yourself in bad situations. Stop seeing how close you can get to the edge of sin without actually sinning, falling off that cliff leading to your death. In high school, that was my favorite question. Well, is this a sin? Is this a sin? Is this a sin? Can I do this and still be okay? That's the wrong question. How far away can I get from this is the right question. People used to tell me you can't get close to the fire without ending up smelling like smoke. Run as far away from the fire as you can. Men, I realize that's hard because fire is really awesome. But here's the other thing. Control your eyes. This is huge. Control your eyes. If you control your eyes, you win the game. This is Jesus, Matthew 6.22. The eye is a light for the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are evil, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if the only light you have is really darkness, then you have the worst kind of darkness. This is a big deal. What are you watching? What are you looking at? What are you allowing your eyes to see? The Bible says you need to control that. Job 31.1, I have made a covenant with my eyes to not look lustfully at a woman. You need to have filters on your phone. You need to have filters on your internet. You need to be taking every opportunity you have to control your eyes. Because if you control your eyes, you're going to win this temptation game more often than not. Your eyes are what causes conceit. Well, I want that. They've got that. I want it. That's a sin. Control your eyes. Here's the other way. We learned this from Jesus. Counter temptation with God's word. You counter temptation with God's word. This is what happened every single time Jesus was tempted. You see him uh, be led out to the desert to be tempted. And every single time the devil quotes scripture and Jesus quotes scripture back. How many times have you been tempted where you feel like this could be the right thing? What the devil likes to do is he takes Scripture out of context. He convinces you that this could be okay. And you need to counter those bad, temptational Scriptures with God's true word. You put everything back into the frame of reference that God has commanded. It's why you need to be studying your Bible. It's why I like to try in every single week or every other week... Uh, do a new scripture with my son. You say things like, love the Lord your God with your whole heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. For all of sin falls short of the glory of God. I mean, you, you can change the scripture a little so, so a two, two, three, four-year-old can understand it, okay? You've got to put it in your heart, though, because what's King David say? I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Temptation leads to sin. Counter the temptation Uh, with God's Word. That's why you need to be reading your Bible. Here's the last one. Get healthy relationships. You need to surround yourself with people who are positive influences. If you have a bad marriage and all the people around you also have a bad marriage, then your marriage isn't going to get any better because none of your influences are going to be saying, no, you need to stick this out. No, you need to go to counseling. No, you need to get some help. They're just going to say, just get a divorce. That's what we're going to do. If you're a have problem with drinking or alcohol or drugs, and all you do is hang out with other addicts, you're not going to magically stop. You have to surround yourself with positive 
role models, get in relationships. Let me tell you this. You need to have somebody in your life that knows every secret in your life. All your secrets. Because the devil's going to use that to tempt you. And if you don't have somebody in your life that can say, no, 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 no. Here's where this leads. Hey, this is deception. Then you're going to fall into that temptation. The devil needs your desire to tempt you. So if somebody doesn't know all your secrets, that desire is going to seem a lot more appealing. Here's number four. I'm going to explain it, and then I'll give you the point because I figured you all out already. I mean, it only took me two and a half years, but I realize if you write this point down, y'all are going to check out because it feels complete. Oh, I got my notes done. Great. No, you need to hear this. If you're a Christian, two people live inside of you, the Spirit of God and yourself. So every single time temptation knocks at your door, somebody has to answer the door. If you'll send Jesus, you'll win every single time. But if you try and answer that door yourself, you're going to fall. Follow me on this. John 14, 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. What have we already learned? Disobedience to God, deception, disobedience is sin. Notice, Jesus didn't say, follow the rules and then you'll love me. He said, if you love me, you'll follow the rules, which means temptation is not a test of your self-control. Temptation is a test of your relationship with Jesus. You guys tracking with me? Temptation is all about how much you're involved with Jesus. Because if you'll send him to open the door, you'll win every single time. Temptation won't be a huge lingering issue anymore because you know how to overcome it. Here's how I want you to write it down. Fall in love with Jesus fall in love with Jesus. You can beat all these evil, wicked desires that are within you, things that you want. When you love Jesus, you'll do what he says. Amen, somebody? Let's pray. God, thank you for sending your spirit to live inside of us, to help us navigate these difficult things in life. God, I have a unique opportunity where I get to know some of the trials people are going through in life where other people don't know all those things. And God, I know in here there's some deep, dark, hurtful things going on. And I'm praying right now because you told me to, to ask for wisdom. I'm asking for wisdom on behalf of those people. That you can teach them the lesson that you're trying to teach them quickly that you can help them overcome this trial speedily. God, I pray for their maturity. I hope that this draws them closer to you. But I also know that you need to teach them something, and I thank you and praise you for that. God, if there's anybody here battling temptation, I just ask that you speak to them in an encouraging way. Help them control their eyes. Help them 
find somebody that they can confess these secrets to. Help them send Jesus to answer the door when they're tempted. God, if there's anybody here this morning who has not accepted this free gift of salvation through your son, Jesus, to allow the Holy Spirit to live in their life so that they can overcome temptations, so that they can learn from trial, God, I just ask that you speak to them right now. And if you would say in your heart, that's me, I need the Spirit of Jesus to live inside me. I just ask you to follow me in this prayer. Say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've been disobedient. I'm sorry I've deceived myself. I'm sorry I've sinned. But like James, I believe that Jesus came to this earth as your son that he died on the cross. But three days later, he rose from the dead. And because I believe that, I know that I'm saved. Thank you for saving me. Help me now as I live a life for you. God, thank you for that new life. I thank you for all the lives represented here this morning. We thank you most of all for Jesus, and it's in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen.